0: Crackers and cheese could have been so much worse of a slip up, eh? (laughs) I've had much worse. Woof. Well, happy Easter. The first Easter was very different, wasn't it? History records it. Nobody, and I mean nobody, celebrated the first Easter. There was no band, there was no music, there was no food, there was no bonus overtime if you ended up working and having to watch this later. Like There was no overtime pay on the first Easter, it was not a holiday, it was nothing. There were zero conspiracy theorists the first Sunday outside the tomb with signs that said, don't believe the news, he's not actually dead. Not one. There was no countdown. There was no parents there like, kids, kids, put the Easter eggs down for a second. It's going to be huge. You're going to miss it. Five, four, three. Here he comes. Two. Okay, Jesus. Jesus. Now's a good time to come. Right? Like, none of that happened on the first Easter. Mary shows up to the tomb, and it's open. And the surprise is not a surprise of excitement. Like a little smirk on her face, like, ooh, it's happening. Jesus where are you Not the first Easter She assumes the body has been stolen It's the only explanation she can fathom And she runs to tell the other disciples and she doesn't find a door that's left just a little bit open so that when Jesus come in his disciples can jump out from behind the furniture surprise Happy resurrection we knew you could do it You did great Instead, she finds what we find out later is a locked door with disciples who are terrified. Their leader was murdered, and they assume they're next, and the Roman soldiers don't knock before they enter. There are some things that everyone can agree on, and in the ancient world, anyone who watched a crucifixion could agree, that person's dead. The Romans were professional executioners. They beat him to the point where his bones were visible, nine-inch nails secured him to a tree, murdered at the hands of professional executioners whose very lives would have been on the line if they had in any way an incomplete job on the criminals they were charged with killing. Nobody doubted the Romans' ability to kill. Jesus was dead. The person the disciples put their hope in had failed, hope was gone. The three years they spent listening and taking notes under this rabbi wasted. I imagine a lot of tear-soaked pillows the last few days. Hearts racing, fear, embarrassment, desperation. Hopelessness, such a human place to feel hopeless. We've all been there, haven't we? When hope seems gone, we get the news that the chemo hasn't worked. We get the call from the doctor we never wanted. We find out the insurance won't cover the fire. Hearing that the market shifted and our dreams may never come true. The knock on the door at that horrible hour and looking through the peephole and seeing a uniform. The hiring freeze. The email, an email three years before retirement letting you know of restructuring. Or getting a text from a loved one as they text their loved one, but your name isn't the one they're mentioning. We've all experienced hopelessness on an individual level in all kinds of different ways, and that's just individual hopelessness. Then there's collective hopelessness. Some of you come from countries where you've experienced the hopelessness of being unsure if your politicians can be trusted. Some of you are quite sure that's our country. Some of you felt hopeless as you face the walls in the judicial system, whether from the inside or maybe just watching from afar as you read the stats and realize how hopeless it seems that for every 1,000 victims of sexual assault, only 25 perpetrators will ever be convicted. That feels hopeless. And then there's the religious fear, which is not immune at all, a place that historically people came to find hope has many people feeling like faith and scandal seem to be synonyms now. Feels that hate is often baptized in a sacred text. That the name of a carpenter that once brought life to people in the margins has been commandeered by those who fight for only their rights. Is it any wonder that so many, including many of you maybe who've tuned in today or many even in the room have their hand on the exit door of faith? many of the institution and the people of faith feel untrustworthy and hopeless. And then there's the global stage. I mean, in the West, the last few decades, we've had this unique sense of immunity and freedom to ignore the brokenness in the world. And we need to realize when you read history, you start to realize that that is such a unique and abnormal experience for the majority of humans who have lived and have, do live and have lived all throughout history. For most people who've lived, uncertainty, fear, panic, being on the move, desperate, and hopeless is more of a lived experience throughout human history. But we're feeling it now. Many for the first time as food prices soar, gas and home prices run away. It makes sense that we throw around statements like, I'm losing hope in humanity. But hope is one of those things that we need to live. In fact, it's the reason why lost hope is a euphemism for suicide. Hopelessness is something we've all experienced. The disciples did not get a unique experience that day. It was something very human. Their leader, their best friend, was dead. Jesus lost to the empire. The tension of grieving the loss of their friend and mentor unexpectedly and horribly, while also dealing with the tension of trying to figure out what do we do with our lives now because our lives are on the line. We left our jobs, we left our families to follow Jesus. We thought this was gonna bring hope to our people, and now what do we do? And so it's this tension of grief and loss and trying to just squeeze out some hope, and what do we have next? We can kind of imagine the hope, the, the thoughts that are in their mind as they try and cling on to anything they can find hope in. As many of us have done when we've lost relationships. Sometimes the way we find hope is by making an inner vow we will never love again or we do everything in our power to find some sort of relationship. Financially, when we experience the squeeze and the hopelessness, sometimes we grab a little tighter to our resources Stock up a little bit more. When hope starts to slip away, we start to grab onto anything that we can. So many have penned words to describe hopelessness. Success is my only option, failure's not. I need to get rich or die trying, or eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Hope. And hopelessness has a way of reorienting the way that we live. One of the scariest warnings you can give someone is of a person who's lost all hope when we say, careful, they have nothing left to lose. So while 2,000 years may separate us in history, I can imagine we understand the hopelessness the disciples felt that first Easter morning. It's a very human space, a very real space. A space many of us can resonate maybe even this morning with the things that maybe you're facing. For the disciples, when Jesus died, hope died. The way of Jesus was dead. The man who promised life to the full was now the exact opposite, fully dead. Seemingly breaking his promise that he would never leave his followers, that he would be with them forever. There were no Christians the first Easter Sunday. Nobody believed Jesus was the savior, let alone the savior of the world. The way of Jesus died with him. The way of following Jesus, loving your enemies, forgiving those who hurt you, praying praying for those who persecute you, welcoming the foreigner, caring for those on the margins, living sacrificially, that was over. In fact, even before Jesus took his last breath, The moment they started arresting him, all of a sudden that way was abandoned as one disciple pulled out a sword and sliced off an ear. Loving your neighbor? No. Now it's back to fighting your neighbor. It wasn't about love anymore. It was about power and control. Nobody's taking their cues from Jesus anymore. The way of Jesus is dead. When Jesus was pronounced dead, so was his movement. Nobody was saying that day. Don't worry, guys. I took really good notes. I I got almost everything he said. I think we can still tell people about the Jesus way. We can tell people that God loves them. We can tell them that God's like a shepherd who will leave the 99 and go after the one. We can tell people to turn the other cheek. I'll volunteer to teach the class. Let's keep this movement alive. Nobody was saying that. Guys, we can still go to weddings. I mean, I don't know how we'll do the miracle thing, but I know someone who owns a vineyard. We can still bring the party with us. Nobody is saying that this Easter. I imagine the pessimists in the room would be like, why? It's hopeless. We know where that movement ends. Death. The empire wins. Love loses every time. No doubt some are making their own plans going back to fishing, making inner vows. I'm never, ever listening to a rabbi again. Some wondering if they're gonna join the freedom fighters. Others colluding with the Romans to become tax collectors. Anything to get by. And then something interrupted the plans that day. John 20, verse one. Early on the first day of the week, While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. It's a way of the author writing themselves into the story. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. She assumes the body's stolen. It's the only thought that comes to mind. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple, the author who's actually penning this, started for the tomb. Both were running. I love this part. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Why is that an important detail? I just can't help but think John's writing this. He's like, Peter's dead now. I can just tell them. I beat him in a sprint. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. He's like, because who's gonna go into an enclosed area where there's been a dead body for three days? That does not seem smart. (laughs) Then Simon Peter came along, he caught up behind him and went straight into the tomb. (laughs) Typical Peter, shoots first, aims later. Doesn't think about the fact there's a body rotting in there. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Believed what? And I love the author. He clarifies, they still didn't understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. (laughs) They believed the body was gone, assumed stolen. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. I love this. Because the next part is, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. It's like, typical dudes. It's like, and now we're going to run for our safety again and go hide. Leave Mary all alone, nobody to comfort her, until. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was him. Does he look different? Also, she's just not expecting him. He's dead. She saw him die. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. I love that God in the flesh reminds people of a gardener. She said, sir, if you'd carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. I imagine that oh, so familiar voice. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbinai, which means teacher. Now she knew. Now she recognized. I pause there because this is one of so many powerful moments that we read right past. And yet it's the first of so many reasons why I'm so convinced that this story is true. For so many people, Easter's a nice story, it's a nice fable, it's a lesson about new life and second chances, but at its core, it's really a fairy tale. It's nothing more than cult creation 101, which is kind of, you know, how you start a cult. You get people to think your leader is superhuman. What better way than to convince people that they can conquer death and they're immortal? And then you spread that story long enough, and eventually people believe the legend. But for me, when I read the details and history, it tells a very different story. First off, there's the story itself. The original accounts don't read anything like a person trying to create history and to start a movement, as often people do. In fact, the authors get it all wrong if that's their intention. First of all, the first problem is the fact that it was Mary that first saw Jesus. In the ancient Near East, women were seen as untrustworthy, didn't testify in court. So if you're trying to start a movement for any benefit, any, you know, leveraging of power, you wouldn't pick a woman to be in the first century ancient Near East your first testimony, your first witness. It wouldn't work, and yet that's exactly what's in the story. And then there's the writers themselves. They write themselves in a way that can only be assumed to be the truth because they, you know, they wouldn't do it that way if they were making up a religion and you wanna lead it. Why? Because when you read the Gospel accounts, the four stories, they record their own stupidity, their cowardice, their ignorance. They record the number of times that Jesus went, seriously, guys? How many times do I have to tell you? They record the time where, you know, one of them lied about even knowing Jesus. Another one tried to run away and they grabbed his clothes and he decided, I'd rather run through a field naked than be associated with this Jesus guy. And they put that in there as well. They even included the time when one of their moms showed up and asked their teacher to show a little favoritism towards her boys. That's not what you do. And that's not what you record if you're trying to make up a story. You highlight the fact that you're the greatest general under this leader. You're the most trusted. You're the most worthy to lead. None of the gospel writers write themselves in a good light. But let's say they thought of that. You know, they added these details to throw the scent off that they made up the story. There's the problem of timing. Timing. Because historians have actually, historians, not Christian historians, I'm just talking about like historian historians. Historians have actually mapped out what it takes in history to start a legend. And step number one in creating a legend, a fake story that you want people to believe is true, is you wait till everybody who can prove it wrong is dead. Then you can say, yeah, and in a land far, far away, you know, this time before any of us were born, it's like, who's going to argue with you? Nobody was around back then in the land far, far away. You know, it'd be like, you know, the opposite would be me, you know, tomorrow morning starting a rumor that, you know, Mark at the end of his sermon just kind of flew around the room. It was awesome. It's like, and nobody's coming back next week. It's like, because you just know that's not true. You tried to make something up, but you didn't wait for all of us to die. It was too soon. These stories were written at a time when they could have been fact-checked. Within one generation of the death and resurrection of Jesus, four different accounts surface documenting alongside historical places and events and rulers and one of them even states and then jesus showed himself to over 500 people And i love this little part in the story it says some of them are still alive today translation go ahead fact check me it's groundbreaking for the ancient near east this time especially for a carpenter from some backwater region of judea in fact it's groundbreaking for empires Think of Alexander the Great. Everything we know about Alexander the Great, virtually all of it comes from one source named Livy, and it was written 400 years after Alexander the Great, and we see it as accurate history. Jesus, a carpenter from a region of Judea, four accounts written of his life, and what happens? In the lifetime when the eyewitnesses are still alive, a movement grows. This was not the birth of a legend, it was historically based on a, It was a historically based movement responding to something that happened. To which others say, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the story that history tells us. But don't forget, history can't always be trusted because the winners write the history books. I'm reminded of that scene in 300. Remember 300? When that king looks at these Spartans and he says, we will erase your name from the history books. No one will ever know that you existed. The bottom line is winners write the history books and can tweak as they wish, no denying that. The interesting thing is for the first few hundred years of the Christian faith, the Christians weren't the winners. They were the losers. They weren't writing history To be a Christian was synonymous with having a death wish. This was the time of the Roman Empire. Nero's Rome. Just Wikipedia that. Okay, Read about Nero's circus. You will read about Christians being kebobbed on stakes and lit on fire to light up Nero's circus at night so people could see other Christians being fed to lions. They weren't the winners rewriting history. The winners, the Romans, were writing about this tiny movement of Jesus' followers that was gaining traction. One example is actually during the great Roman plagues, the great, you know, the Roman Emperor Julian, actually, we have this letter that he wrote where he describes the embarrassment that the other Romans should feel because as the plague is spreading, the Romans were throwing their sick into the streets. He says, and the Christians are not only caring for their own sick, they're going out into the streets and taking care of the Romans and bringing them in and nursing them to health. There's so many other accounts of you know, Romans writing and speaking of these Christians and what they're doing and they can't get their minds around why they would live this way. I love the way one historian asked it. How do you explain the Christian faith breaking out of the first century? There was no status or privileges or benefit to believing in Jesus in the first century and yet the movement exploded. The historically honest question is not did the resurrection happen, it's a fair one and you can ask it, but the more challenging one is if the resurrection didn't happen, how do you explain a bunch of first century people choosing to live in a way that often cost them their lives based on a belief that a carpenter from a backwater region of Judea rose from the grave within a verifiable time period I'm convinced it took more faith to deny the resurrection than to believe it. And the resurrection created a movement, a movement of hope. Why did hundreds and then thousands of people choose to follow Jesus? I'm going to say it probably sounded a lot like this at the dinner table. It's like, well, well, why would you follow Jesus? Do you see what they're doing to Christians? And I just just imagine, this is just my imagination. Someone's just like, listen, I'm gonna listen to the guy who predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off. I'm gonna listen to the guy. Yeah, but did you see the way? And there's no way that you're gonna win. Do you see what the Roman, I'm just gonna go and I'm just gonna listen to the guy who predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off. Bottom line is if claiming the resurrection is a legend, history verifies that the writers started a little bit too early. If you want to claim that the leveraging of power to rewrite the history books was in effect, history lacks any evidence of that influence and power amongst the early Christians. If claiming that there was some sort of status or benefit as a reason to join the movement as an explanation for why people would become Jesus followers, the evidence of mass murder, mistreatment, and slander needs to be strategically ignored from the history books. Why did Hus- hundreds and then thousands of people choose to follow Jesus? At the time, I think it was the intellectually honest thing to do when you saw someone who was dead and then was alive. And all that was good news because it meant that if he was right about his death and resurrection and then pulled it off, then everything he said was true. When Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, it meant that God is exactly like Jesus. It meant that, you know, God is not some far off deity expecting child sacrifice, threatening to stir the ocean like Poseidon and send a big storm if you didn't act just the way he expected, but that the creator of the world was love embodied, that God is like a parent who we can bring our needs and our concerns to, that God is like a shepherd who would leave the 99 and go after the one because one life lost for the creator of the universe is a cost too high that God would go through death, even death on a cross, to be with us. It meant everything he said about humans was true, that there is such thing as second chances. As he described described it to one person, you can be born again, signifying you can have new life. Doesn't matter what you've done, who you've slept with, what regime you've worked for, who you've exploited or been exploited by how unforgivable our behaviors may seem to those around us or even to ourselves, there are second chances, forgiveness for our wrongs, fresh beginnings, forgiveness for our sins. That we can actually dare to live a life of service and sacrifice, even when the world seems upside down, even when it will cost us dearly, even to the point of death. We need not try to grab on and hold on and create our own hope out of our circumstances. We need not get rich or die trying or eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. We don't need to live grasping for every ounce of pleasure. We can live a life the way Jesus invites us to, knowing no matter how hopeless a situation may seem that we find ourselves in, we follow a resurrected Savior, a God who conquers death and is in the business of bringing dead things back to life and has promised to always be with us, even in the darkest and the most hopeless-seeming places we find ourselves in. The early Christians experienced this, believed this, and lived in light of the hope that the resurrection gave them. No longer did politicians or religious leaders or militaries or heads of state or parents or spouses or even their own perspectives determine if they could live with hope. Jesus conquered the grave and showed them and us death is not the end. The death we experience in our lives, whether physical or simply the metaphorical deaths that we seem to die every day, the truth is that we can live life and live it to the full now and forever in relationship with a God who looks exactly like Jesus, a God who would rather die for his enemies than ever raise a hand against them. That is good news, not just for the winners in history, not just for the powerful and the wealthy, but for everyone. And that hope is found in no other name than that of Jesus Christ. That is good news. That is hope. And some of you are here today and you're in unexplainable pain and you feel completely hopeless. And today, I wanna encourage you to look to the one to find comfort in the fact that you worship a God who has been through it all, and yet promises to be with you, even when our hope appears to be six feet underground. And there's some of you here today, maybe you've been actually burned by people who claimed the name of Jesus and yet looked nothing like him. Burned by the church, church people, You've experienced texts weaponized by people who found power and wealth within institutions of faith. Today I pray that you find hope in the same way the early Jesus followers did. Not for fame or power or influence or control, but fully alive in the hope that we find in the resurrection. It was irresistible to the people of the first century and I pray it's irresistible to you as well. So wherever you're at today, we worship a God who wrote himself into human history, suffered all of the pain and temptation and hopelessness that we know all too well, and shows us nothing, not even death, is irredeemable or hopeless. That's the hope we celebrate this Easter and every Easter for the last 2,000 years. The same Jesus who predicted his death and resurrection invites us to follow him and live in relationship with him forever. And if you're here today and you're not a Jesus follower, before we celebrate communion, I just want to take a moment to invite you to journey with us. Here at Lakeside, we are all about Jesus. We love exploring him, discovering more about him, the relationship he invites us into and how we can become more like him. And for many people in history, the hearing of the resurrection was the beginning of a journey and a quest, a beginning of asking questions to discover who was this Jesus. And maybe some of you are at that point today, and I just wanna invite you, I just pray that Lakeside would be a safe place, whether you join us online, here in the room, or even uh, downtown, that you would feel this is a safe place to journey and discover and ask questions and discover about this God who became flesh, die on our behalf and show us that hope is possible in the resurrection. With that, I wanna move us to the last element of our gathering. I wanna invite Robin to lead us in something that most of us are probably used to doing on Good Friday, but she's gonna explain to us why it's so appropriate to do it on Easter Sunday.